Welcome. Welcome to City Life. I want to, uh, it's kind of odd, add to something I said in a video on the screen right over there just a second ago, but maybe you're out there and you're, you're like, where's the, the table for the sponsorships? Where are all the sponsorships at? Well, I want to say thank you uh, to our campus, the home team, right? Uh, last week we had a full table. Every single one of them got sponsored. So thank you guys for your generosity. I know, and let's be serious, most of you, even before last week, already sponsored a child, so it was just added to the children that are already being sponsored. So there's two left between both campuses. So Fred has one on his pulpit. I have one on mine. I know maybe some of you were either praying about it last week or maybe you weren't here last week, but there's one left. So let's, as a church, I don't know who it'll be. I know somebody, God's going to put it on your heart to sponsor this young lady from the DR. And again, like I explained in the video, that, that money that maybe you've been giving, maybe you started giving last week or maybe you'll start giving tonight, it goes towards uh, medical needs. It goes towards schooling. It goes towards feeding not just their family but the entire village. So I can tell you because I've been there three times now that we're making an impact. And it's awesome. Kenny's been there. He can tell you uh, a lot of people in here have been there and seen the impact we're having on that village. And then also there was that video where April shared about her faith promise. And one thing that wasn't explicitly explained in that video is that every dime that we raise for faith promise goes towards missions. So it goes towards the Toby Cavanaugh. Toby Cavanaugh came and spoke here in December. It goes towards him. It goes towards a missionary or missionaries we support in Turkey. It goes towards these mission trips we take in the DR where we build latrines. We built a water filtration system, and now we're working to build an irrigation system. It goes towards mission trips to Haiti. So there's tens of thousands of dollars we've given as a church to mission work all over the globe through this right here, Faith Promise. So that's simply what we're asking. I know a lot of you got one last week. I know if you weren't here last week, there's some on the pews, but pray about it. Pray about what you can give, what maybe God's stirring your heart to do, and then we're going to take these up the very last Saturday in what month? February. We're in February. Time flies. Anyways, pray about that, and again, every single penny is going to missions, whether it's here or abroad. So pray about that. God's going to do big things through that, uh, both in the missions, and then I know as we make those promises in faith that we'll see more stories like April's that she shared in the announcements. Thank you, Cord. I don't know. This is yours? Who wants to take 100 selfies on course four? No, here we go. <laughs> but uh, we've been talking here about encountering God's presence, embracing God's people, and engaging God's mission. Just this vision as a church to encounter God's presence, embrace God's people, and engage his mission. So hopefully tonight as we were in worship and as we've been worshiping God that you've encountered God's presence. Hopefully tonight as you've uh, seen some faces, shook some hands, had some conversations in the lobby, you've been able to embrace God's people. And those two things are so much bigger than just 90 minutes on a weekend. And each one is a sermon unto itself. And you can podcast last week when we talked about embracing God's people, this family of faith, this family that's bigger than just us, bigger than just the four walls here. It's the global church that we get to be a part of. But tonight I want to talk about engaging God's mission. And just as we turned last week to John 17, I want to turn again tonight to John 17, this prayer of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be reading out the Amplified version. So maybe if you've got the version app, you can swipe to the Amplified version. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. And there's Bibles under the pews as well. And if you open up a book from under the pew and you're like, I don't know what translation this is or book this is, you probably have a hymnal. Those are down there too. So uh, put that back and grab a Bible. But we'll be in John 17. And we'll be in verses 13 through 19. This is Jesus, again, praying to God the Father at the end of his ministry. And it's powerful because as we'll see in this prayer, he's praying for us. He's praying for every believer to come. He's praying for his, his, his followers then, but everyone to come. So it's a prayer he's praying for us. And I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. But 
Tonight, starting in verse 13, he says, Now I am coming to you, and I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may experience my joy made full and complete and perfect within them. I have given them your word, the message you gave me, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world and do not belong to the world, just as I am not of the world and do not belong to it. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them and protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart for your purposes. Make them holy. Your word is truth. Just as you commissioned and sent me into the world, I also have commissioned and sent them, believers, into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself to do your will so that they also may be sanctified, set apart, dedicated, made holy in your truth. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Just as we close worship with, I just pray that your truth would be made known tonight. God, that our hearts and minds would come in alignment with your word, your grace, your love, and your truth. Holy Spirit, be here. Use this to impact our hearts and impact our minds. And everybody said in Jesus' name, amen. So encounter God's presence. Engage God's people. Excuse me, embrace God's people. Engage his mission. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. If you read through the book of Acts, you see it in those first chapters. They encounter his presence in that upper room. And then you get that passage in Acts 2 where it talks about how they all came together as a family of faith. And then the very first words in the next chapter talks about how they go. They engage the mission. But we've been looking at John 17. We've been looking at Jesus' ministry where he's God in the flesh saying, hey, come to me. Encounter God's presence. But he doesn't stop there. He encourages people to embrace God's people, other followers, other disciples, the family of faith and what becomes the church. And then lastly, he encourages each person that encounters him to engage God's mission. And why is it God's mission? Why is it not engage your mission? Well, because as we see here in John 17, verse 18, Jesus says, the same way you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. And again, I shared from John 17 last week and beyond about how we're called to this message, and we're called to this mission. And I've pointed to this, this space mission, the Voyager space mission, this opportunity that they had in the 70s, this once in every 176-year opportunity to send out spacecraft and use orbital velocity, all these terms that I'm going to butcher, but basically use the gravity of each planet to shoot these spacecraft faster through our solar system and intersect with four planets on the same journey. Once every 176 years, there was this opportunity, so they jumped on it, and they made two spacecraft, and they realized eventually these spacecraft are going to leave our solar system and go out into the unknown. They're like, we don't know what's out there, so if there's any life out there, we're going to put a message within this mission, and they made what's called the golden record, this 12-inch gold, or not vinyl, gold LP had 55 greetings in 55 languages, 27 different songs, 100 photos just to highlight what life is like for us on earth. So they send out this message within this mission. And, and the mission cost like $850 plus million dollars, years and years to develop. And then they threw together this golden record in six months for $25,000. Actually, it was six weeks for $25,000. But what's funny is when they sent these things off into the atmosphere and, and they were doing uh, interviews with the media, all the questions were about this message, this golden record. Like, what's on the record? What, what's, what's on there to, to show life out there? Because as a culture, as a people, we're usually more concerned with, is there life out there? Are we going to live out Independence Day? Uh, all these other movies, E.T. 
more than we're concerned with what the atmosphere may be like in Jupiter and what it's like on their moons. So as it was shot off and as we look back now, so often the focus is on this golden record. The focus is on this message. And sometimes the mission itself gets neglected. And I share that because we as a church have been given both a message. It's not a golden record, but it's the good news of Jesus Christ. And we've been given a mission. We see it explicitly in 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul says word for word, we have been given this message of reconciliation, that we've been made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But then within 2 Corinthians 5, he also gives us a mission that we're called, therefore, as ambassadors, resident representatives of God ministering to build his kingdom here on earth a domino effect. We receive the message. We're called to the mission, but so often we can focus on the message and, and rejoice over the message in our own life and relish it as a congregation, but never relay it to the world at large. And in doing so, we forsake and forget our mission. But we're called to it, and we don't get another chance in 176 years. We get a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in the time that we're given to accept our mission, both as individuals and as the church. But we can so often get hung up and caught up because of the way we, we imagine this mission or picture, picture this mission. So tonight I want to just look at two ways that we can kind of distort the mission and then two words that will help us reframe the mission that God's given us. Two ways we can sometimes distort it and two words that can help us reframe the mission that God has given us. And we're going to look at God's word, but just one way that we can distort the mission. We can sometimes overcomplicate it, overthink it, and then other times when we aren't doing that, we're boxing it in and we're shrinking it. What am I talking about? What do I mean? Well, sometimes when we talk about missions, our mind goes towards mission trips, right? This great commission is a call to reach all nations. So a lot of times when we think of missions, we think about going across borders. We think about stepping into new cultures. Our focus when we talk about our mission when we talk about our callings as believers, often our eyes shift to the horizon and what's over the horizon. But if we do that and do only that, then we miss the mission that we're given right here where we've been planted by God. See, the church needs people that will go overseas. The church needs Toby Cavanaugh's who will say, man, I'm taking my family and I'm going to go with my buddy to reach college students in China for Christ. And they're doing incredible work. They need missionaries like the ones we've sent to, or we didn't send, but we support in Turkey. The church needs to be sending these trips to, to villages like La Guasara where we, we're able to build the trains and teach them about Jesus. But, man, just as much as the church needs people who will go overseas, the church needs people who will go across the street. We need, just as much as we need people that will go across borders, we need people that are going to go across the street and share the hope that we have. And the question is, have you? Because our call to reach often begins with places that are already within our reach. I've, I've said it before, our call to go in the Great Commission is not always a call to leave. It's a tragic mistake to think that you're not living on mission simply because God hasn't asked you to change your zip code. We all live on mission. We all live on call if we're following Christ. But it's magical, and it's, it's fun to imagine what we could do across borders and other cultures to reach people for Christ. But why don't we start with the people around us who are far gone spiritually rather than what's simply far off? It's not as glamorous sometimes. It's more work. But like we talked about last weekend, if every Christ follower, person around the globe who said, I follow Jesus Christ, I believe in Jesus Christ, simply took care of where they were planted, where God has placed them, their circle of influence, their quote-unquote world, then we would reach most of the world in one fell swoop. 
And when you talk about this idea of most of the world, for the first time in history, first time in history, this century, over half of the world, 50% of the world's population lives within cities. Cities have more image of God per square mile than any other place on earth right now. And in cities, the nuns, let me clarify, I'm not talking about N-U-N-S, not nuns, that kind of nuns, because then your mental picture will get weird as we continue to talk. I'm talking about the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, the people who have no affiliation to any religion or belief system. Those nuns are growing. Your calling is often closer than you think. People need Jesus Christ, and increasingly so, right next door, right across the street, right where we call home. You know, technically there are no unreached people in your neighborhood because God placed you there. The question is, are we living on mission? And hear me out, the, the enemy, he's not as afraid of, of you just going to church. This idea of I go to church to check off a box. Like, he lost one, right? He lost you. But as long as he can keep you boxed into where your idea of a church is just 90 minutes on a weekend, and that's your idea of your calling, and that's your idea of your mission, then, man, he's good. If you just go to church to check off a box, he's got you boxed in, he's good. But what he has to worry about is if you realize that you're called to something bigger. When you start to engage this mission, when you begin to realize that you don't just go to church, but you are the church. Every day of the week, every minute you're awake, let me ask you, moment of participation, when you wake up in the morning, your alarm goes off, what's usually your first thought, your first question? What's the first thing to go through your mind? Oh, no. <laughs> How many times can I hit the snooze button before I really got to get up, right? What else? Where's the coffee? I need coffee. <laughs> so it begins. <laughs> I don't feel like going to work or like a workout. What do I need more, another hour of sleep or that workout? What's more important? What do I need more? <laughs> My child didn't sleep again. I feel you on that. I feel you on that. We'll have a support group for that later. <laughs> what about like for me, I know it's not the first thing, but usually take care of some business. And then I'm like, man, what's the weather outside? What am I going to wear? Sometimes it's what's on Facebook, what's happened over the last eight hours, like it's so important that I have to check what notifications I might have, right? Airplane mode is a gift in the morning. But what if when we woke up, the first two things we thought, the first two questions we ask are, first, God, what are you up to? And then secondly, God, how can I be a part of it? What are you up to? And how can I be a part of it? Because God is always up to something. He didn't just create the world and then watch it from afar. God is always searching for people to join him on mission. And we always have a part to play on this mission every day. But there's a, this, on the other side of the coin, sometimes we can make it bigger and too complicated and, and forget that, man, our mission starts here. But we can also make it so small and boxed in where our mission is here, just in these four walls. This temple spirituality of Jesus' day where if you wanted to meet God and, and worship God, you had to go there. Had to go to the temple. And that's not to discount the equipping that happens in a church service, the anointing that happens in a church service, the pursuit of God that happens in a weekend service. But what I am saying, some of you are like, well, can I go home then? Right? Should I just check out, get some coffee and drive home? No. There's value in this. But I've shared this before. Jesus in the Gospels has 132 recorded interactions with individuals. How many of those do you think happen in the church or the temple? 
It's 10. The rest, the 122 happen outside the four walls, out there doing outreach. Jesus was a temple on wheels. <laughs> Maybe it's why Paul, when he's writing to the church in his epistles, he says, hey, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, saying, hey, the Holy Spirit goes with you, and God can meet people through you. Maybe that's why when the apostles were called in Acts 1-8 to be God's witnesses, it doesn't say be my witnesses from the altar to the pews and then all the way into the foyer. It says from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're called to go. There are two important perspectives as we go out and, and reach the people in our streets, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, on our sports teams. Just two words I want to look at tonight that help define our mission. And the first is, is a simple one. I'm not digging into the Greek or Hebrew, right? And you're not going to have to look up to figure out how to spell it. Hospitality. Hospitality. Hospitality is defined as the friendly and generous reception and entertainment of guests, visitors, or strangers. Now, I've referenced this book because it's a powerful book over the last couple of weeks. It's by Nabil Qureshi. I'm 99% sure I'm saying his name right. Don't mock me if I'm saying it wrong. But Nabil Qureshi, he wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's a book about how one man, he was raised in Islam, but he found Christ. It took years, many conversations, and one constant friend throughout all these years. And there's a, a, a chapter that's about this friendship that he has with this friend, and, and the chapter is called Becoming Brothers. But I want to read just the, the first couple paragraphs of this chapter in this book as he's writing this book, and it's a memoir, it's his account of these interactions. And he says in this chapter as he opens it that there's a simple reason that I never listened to street preachers. They didn't seem to care about me. It wasn't that they were annoying. I found their passion admirable, and I appreciated people who stood up for what they believed. Rather, it was that they treated me like an object of their agenda. Did they have any idea how their message would impact my life? Did they even care? Sure, there are street preachers who share their message while still greeting people kindly, getting to know others' troubles and praying over personal pains, but I never saw them. What I saw were men who would stand on street corners accosting the public with their beliefs. No doubt they reached a few, but they repelled many more. Unfortunately, I have found that many Christians think of evangelism the same way, foisting Christian beliefs on strangers in chance encounters. The problem with this approach is that the gospel requires a radical life change. And not many people are about to listen to strangers telling them to change the way they live. What do they know about others' lives? On the other hand, if a true friend shares the exact same message with heartfelt sincerity, speaking to specific circumstances and struggles, then the message is heard loud and clear. I'll put the last part on the screen where he says, effective evangelism <laughs> requires relationships. If there's any kids left in here, you can go to Kid Life. <laughs> it says... Effective evangelism requires relationships. There are very few exceptions. I'll say that again because it's a powerful statement and we just all got sidetracked. Effective evangelism requires relationships. There are very few exceptions. In my case, in my case, he's speaking from personal experience, but it's powerful to hear from the other side of the street, the other life experience, to listen to somebody else. He says, in my case, I knew of no Christians who truly cared about me. No one who had been a part of my life through thick and thin. I had plenty of Christian acquaintances, and I'm sure they would have been my friends if I had become a Christian. But that kind of friendship is conditional. There were none that I knew who cared about me unconditionally. Since no Christian cared about me, I didn't care about their message. Again, it's powerful to hear from somebody else's perspective. 
when we talk about evangelism, we talk about going out to reach folks. And, man, all he was looking for was relationship. Effective evangelism requires relationships, friendships. But, you know, the church is often poor at making friends with non-Christians because our end goal in our heart is not friendship. It's to change somebody. But you look at Jesus. It says he was the friend of sinners, right, that he invested into people. Specifically, it says in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, it says in that verse in its entirety that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say he was a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. First of all, I love that it says he came eating and drinking, right, that there's something powerful about having a meal with somebody, pulling up a chair at a table. I like to eat. I'm hungry right now because we do service on Saturday nights. I'm already thinking about what I'm eating afterwards. So he came eating and drinking, and there's something powerful about that. Coming up to somebody after church that was like, hey, let's, let's do dinner together. It said a lot in their culture, but it still says a lot in our culture today where it's just drive through, go eat in front of a TV. But to pull up at a table with people, do life together, something powerful and hospitable about that. But he pulled up a chair. And in doing so, he offered community. He offered hospitality. And it doesn't just say that he was an acquaintance of sinners. It wasn't like speed dating. No, he invested in their lives. He took time. If, if you're somebody's friend, you know their wife's name. You know their kid's name. You know their address. Like, you've done life with them. You, you know about them. He took time. Invested time. And again, our culture has become so, like, you click the button, it happens. <laughs> so much is microwaved, and it seems like maybe a drive-by approach to our witness would be the most effective, but it's the opposite. The more it becomes a microwave society, there's something powerful when somebody says, hey, I just want to take the time to invest in you. I want to take the time to get to know you. Again, as, as it says here, effective evangelism, it requires relationships. And most of this book just solidifies this. It's, it's recounting conversations with a Christian friend who he met at ODU. This whole, all takes place down the road, another interesting part of the book. And uh, his friend David was a, a Christian, a believer, and they spent years talking about life, talking about their faith, years invested. I think one of the greatest beauties of the Christian faith, there's many. We talked about the beautiful, reckless love of God, but one of the beautiful things about God's love to me is that it's expressed in patience. Like, I, if I look at my life, how patient has God been with me for, for years? How often do I lack that kind of patience with other people? I'm like, why don't they get their act together, right? What's their problem? Don't they know the truth? Aren't they gonna, like, but he has so much patience with me. Such a beautiful uh, aspect of God's love and his grace. Tim Keller, he's a brilliant apologist. He's a pastor. He writes a book every six months, and they all are amazing. But uh, he's prolific. He was once asked how the church could have a stronger witness and reach amongst unbelievers. His reply was telling to me, he said, we could do a far better job of patiently listening. And we should not talk until we can represent the skeptic's viewpoint with empathy so that they say, yeah, that's my hang-up. I couldn't have put it better myself. Only then should we try to recommend the Christian faith to them. Now, that sounds extreme, but it highlights what Nabil Qureshi was talking about where you're asking somebody to make a radical life change. It's hard and you're, if you're a stranger to, to ask somebody to take that step, but like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we can sometimes have this perspective that hospitality and heartfelt relationships with people who don't know God is somehow like an endorsement of their lifestyle. Like if I'm a friend with this person, I invest in their life, am I endorsing their decisions? Like 
that relationship can somehow be a compromise. Well, if by compromise, you mean find common ground with those of other beliefs so that I can have a bridge and, and a gospel voice in their life, then sign me up for that kind of compromise, right? Sign me up. Again, we're so often poor at, at making friends with non-Christians because it, the end game for us, it's not friendship, it's to change people. But we have to remember only God changes people, truly. Only God does the work of the heart that we seek. We simply get to set the table. And one of the ways we get to do that effectively is to be hospitable and show hospitality. Henry Nguyen, as we continue to talk about hospitality, has a great quote. He says that hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. Again, we can't change people. God does that. He draws all people unto himself, but we get to set the table. Like church every weekend, I'm just like, God, we're setting the table. Let your Holy Spirit do the work that we can't. Take our weakness and be strong, be faithful to draw people to you. This was a restaurant. We're like the, the waiters. We're the people greeting people at the door. God's the one doing the cooking, right? We get to set the atmosphere, the ambiance, but God's behind the scenes. He's making all the food. He's cooking up what the people need. The question is, outside of the church, who are you inviting to the table? Because hospitality can happen anywhere. Your cubicle, your dorm room, your dinner table, just a simple space for outsiders to take a step in. A space where change can take place. We begin to ask questions like, man, what neighbor can I invite into my home to have dinner? What neighbor can I invite into my home for a life group? Who's the coworker God's calling me to step toward, to invite out to coffee? Just to sit, ask some questions, and primarily listen. Get to know, patiently listen. And this is where the church's call, it, it steps beyond our culture's practice. Because in our culture, if you've got differences, then the answer in our culture is, I'll tolerate you as different. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel stance is, no, we're called to treat them as family. We're called to show them hospitality. I'll give you a place to belong even if you don't yet believe. Again, in this book for Nabil Qureshi, it was four to five years where he and his friend David were just doing life together. And there would be some heated debates. And he recounts some of these debates. But for most of the time, they're doing life together together talking about the teachings of their different religions. And it reminds me of where Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, watch your life and your teaching closely. Because here's the reality. What you teach somebody and tell people is going to have very little value if you're not living it. If you want to destroy your witness, live exactly like the world while you tell the world to change. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.22, it's where we get this, this phrase, I became all things to all people. That might sound like, oh, I, I have a license to compromise, to reach people. But if you look at the full context, the verses around that, this is the message version, but it, I love what it says. It says, even though I'm free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. Again, it echoes Tim Keller's thoughts on patiently listening, taking the time to invest in people. But we see from these verses from Paul that our hospitality should go hand in hand with holiness. That hospitality and holiness, we, we should carry one in each hand as we go about our mission. But as we've considered hospitality, let's consider holiness. And what does that mean in regards to our mission? Just again, another participation moment to get us going. What was your favorite uh, Super Bowl commercial? I asked this for many reasons, but one, because 
I was trying to put Raj down to, during the entire second half, and I missed all of the commercials in the second half because every commercial break, I was trying to get him to fall back asleep. But anyways, <laughs> favorite Super Bowl commercial, Tyler. The Tide commercials, we'll come back to those. Cord. I didn't see that till the next day. That was hilarious. Odell Beckham doing the dirty dancing dance with, dirty dancing, right? Steph would slap me, but yeah, she's not in here. The, oh, yeah, the Ram truck commercial with the Vikings. That was first half. I saw that one. <laughs> Anybody else? For Steph, like, that's the highlight. She wanted to see Justin Timberlake perform, and she wanted to see the commercials. She could have cared about nothing else. But I know my favorite, and I even missed one of them because there were multiple of them, was what Tyler was talking about, these Tide commercials. All right? And the first one that, that kind of set the stage for all the others is it was just a minute long, and you'd be like, you might think this is a, a beer commercial. You might think this is a car commercial. You might think this is an insurance commercial. But each time, he'd point out the clean clothes, and he'd say, whenever there's, there's, there's clothes this clean, it's a Tide ad. So it was kind of like Inception all this happened. Every commercial had a commercial within it for Tide. It was genius. I thought it was genius. But as you think about these commercials, how often do we define holiness as similar? Don't get dirty. Life this clean is a holy life. And that's how we picture our mission. Just don't get unclean. That's how religious leaders of Jesus' day did. Live clean. And you'll point out God's goodness in an unclean world. And what's dangerous is there's some truth in that. But when we only see holiness as remaining clean by avoiding unclean environments, we almost have this idea where like sin expands by osmosis. If we come in touch with it, all of a sudden it affects us, and it leads to a bunker mentality, just this isolation in a response to an increasingly broken world and an increasingly broken culture where we put up walls to shut the world out. We pursue God. We worship him on the weekend, but we do it with as little contact with the world or those people as possible. We end up focused on maintenance, but we forsake our mission, all in the name of our view of holiness, right? Because the mission would mean to go out there. And when you've got a Tide commercial Christianity, it becomes defined by, well, what am I against? What do I stand above? What do I stand apart from? Now, there's wisdom. There's wisdom that the Bible would give us. Like, there are circumstances to avoid. If you're an alcoholic, uh, don't go trying to reach people in a bar the next day. If you struggled with gambling for decades, don't go handing out reach cards in a casino for a couple hours. When... uh, Establish footsteps, goes out to these strip clubs to minister to these women, do this powerful ministry. We're not signing up husbands and, and young men, right? There's wisdom in what, the ways we go out to engage the mission that God has given us. But we can't hold up holiness as simply what we're against, what we stand above, what we stand opposed to. Because then you get this perspective of the Pharisees that sees Jesus engaging those people and ask questions like, well, why is Jesus associating with those people? That's what the religious leaders were asking him and his disciples. Shouldn't you be separate from them? Shouldn't you stand above them? Shouldn't you be apart from everything they're doing? But Jesus' idea of holiness wasn't simply what he was against. It was about what he gives himself to. See, we can make holiness about isolation, but Jesus calls us to penetrate, to infiltrate. When we make holiness about what we're above, what we're against, what we're staying apart from or avoid, we end up isolating. But when holiness becomes about what you give yourself to, you begin to infiltrate. And Jesus gave himself to the unclean. Jesus gave himself to the contagious. 
Jesus gave himself to the corrupt. Jesus touches the unclean. In those days, if you came in contact with something that was unclean, you became unclean. But what's powerful about the Gospels is we see Jesus flip that entirely on its head, where he touched things that were unclean and they were made clean. He touched people that were broken and they were healed. He touched things that were dead and they were brought to life. And we have to remember what we sing is true, that the same power that was in him is in us. And we can go about on our mission in the same way. You know, we've got a lot of thermometers in the church, people that can recognize a problem. Scroll down your Facebook home feed. 99% of it is people uh, talking about first world problems. We can recognize problems. This here is a problem. That person is a problem. Where we can point to perceived issues, but we need more thermostats. People that are willing to go to dark places and be a light. People that are willing to go to dark places and change the atmosphere, set the temperature. But when we set ourselves apart physically, we'll never set the temperature spiritually. Because we'll never go. Where there's no contact, there's no impact. So are we called to be set apart? Absolutely. You'll see it again and again in Scripture, the idea of being set apart, the idea of being separate. But what's powerful is when we look at Jesus' prayer that we opened with in John 17. Let's get this goofy guy off the screen. It says in John 17, verses 17 through 19, again, Jesus is praying, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart for your purposes. Make them holy. Your word is truth. And just as you commissioned and sent me into the world, I also have commissioned and sent them believers into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself to do your will so that they also may be sanctified, set apart, dedicated, made holy in your truth. So at both ends of these verses, we see this idea of being set apart. And we're set apart for a reason. We're set apart for God's purposes. And what his purpose is for us is pretty explicit in these verses and in Jesus' prayer. Our purpose is to be commissioned and sent out into the world. So when we begin to think about being set apart and being separate, being set apart and being separate, it's not about geography. It's about the condition of your heart. Difference doesn't demand that we be distant. Again, there's, there's wisdom to be walked there, but we don't have to be distant. We can be set apart and sent. We can be both holy and hospitable. We can come in grace and truth. Because you can spend your entire life avoiding things, uh, standing against things, and really never give yourself to anything. But man, give yourself to both holiness and hospitality, and you'll begin to have a powerful witness. You look at what Jesus taught. The two greatest commands were what? Love. All of the Old Testament laws were summed up in what? Love. So those who live most holy will be those that love most deeply. Those that walk in the deepest holiness will also walk with the most love and hospitality. Love can be both holy and hospitable. But the church is so well known in our culture for what it's against and what we stand apart from and what we avoid. And it's because we bought into this outrage culture where we draw lines in the sand. It's us versus them. But in a world of outreach, we have to give ourselves to a life of outreach. What better way to be a light in a dark culture? Where the culture draws lines in the sand, we as a church, we step across those lines in the sand. Where the church lives with this perspective of us versus them, every day is something new where you got to choose a side. It's us versus them. Jesus said, hey, it's me for them. And he gives us as a church this perspective of us for them, me for them. Those people, those are the ones we're called to reach. That's how we penetrate our culture. Not by outrage, but outreach. You look at how Jesus did work in his culture. You look at what Jesus did to affect the world where he was. Jesus did not have a passport. Technically, you didn't really need one those days, but he didn't have Wi-Fi. 
He didn't have all these things we have. And yet somehow he reached Justin David White in the year 2005 A.D. How did he do that? By making disciples who made disciples. By making disciples who live with both the message and the mission. By, by making sure that his disciples were faithful to engage God's mission. Jesus left his mission for the church to fulfill, just as he says in John 17, 18, right? And there's no backup plan. If we don't pursue God's mission, we're not fulfilling our purpose. We don't just miss out, but this region will miss out. If we don't walk in the purpose God has for us as a church and each one of us, as we go out and we are the church, we're the Holy Spirit on wheels, right? The temple on wheels. And Jesus' disciples, they understood that to be in on the gospel, you have to go out. You have to go. The Great Commission says go. And Paul certainly went. We see Paul going all over the place. But he was honestly the exception for most people in that time. Most people in that time never went more than a few dozen miles from their home. There wasn't mass transportation. There wasn't opportunities. I'm going to go fly to the DR to minister to this village. It just didn't happen. Yet they still lived on mission. Because they started with their world. They started where they were planted. Again, your calling is often closer than you think. You, just like most of the early church, may not have the opportunity to go overseas, but we can certainly cross the street. We can certainly engage the people that God has put around us. So if I could have the, the worship team come up. Obviously, if we're going to see revival, it starts with right here. It starts with us. If we're going to be ambassadors. We have to ourselves encounter God's presence if we're going to share God with the world he's put us in, the place he's put us. So I want to close in worship. But, man, start with the place he's put you. Live both hospitable and live holy. Be a friend and share your faith. Open your home and open your heart. But you know what? Before you open your home to a new person, you're probably going to have to step out of your home. <laughs> Take a field trip. What do I mean? Because when you look at schools, field trips in schools, they're because that we've realized a, there's a benefit to experiential learning in an authentic setting and to do it in, in a social grouping. Learning outside of the classroom. Learning outside of a, a lecture. Learning by experience. And we need to be a church that takes field trips. That steps out of this room where we get to worship and, and hear God's word spoken and goes into the harvest fields. That leaves this room and goes out into the mission fields. That takes field trips. That lives lives on mission. And man, you may be praying about your future and your calling and God may be calling you far away. God may be calling you to do missionary work, but we can't forget as a believer that we live our life on call. We live our life on mission. We have our great commission from day one as a believer to walk in that God's given us. And I've always found like a, a good way for me to check my temperature when it comes to, man, am I engaging the mission? Am I actually walking out the great commission? A good way to check my heart is simply ask myself, man, how many people have I prayed for over the past week that don't know Jesus? If it's nobody, I'm probably not living it. I'm probably not walking it. Who am I praying for that doesn't know Jesus? Who am I interacting with daily that God wants me to start interceding on their behalf, asking for open door opportunities, divine appointments to where I can share what God's done? But you know what? It starts with simply hospitality. Open the door to situations where they can simply be before they believe. They can belong before they believe. Where you can simply, patiently get to know somebody and then watch as the Holy Spirit builds the bridge that God can walk over. But again, for me, I always find like a good way to check my temperature. But whether I'm engaging the mission is who am I praying for that doesn't know Jesus? 
So as we go back into worship, I've simply got these little bookmarks because you can keep them in your Bible, keep them in the cup holder in your car, keep them wherever, in, on your mirror. And all it simply says is it's got, it's got from 1 Timothy 2 where it says, God wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. The first thing I want you to do is pray. Pray every way you know how for everyone you know how. And for all the ministry we do as a church, whether it's here or out there, it starts with prayer. Before we ever had our first service, we were praying for it a year before we ever planned it. All those things that God is calling us to do, impacting lives, impacting hearts, it should start with prayer. So we could have given these out at the door, put them on your seat. You could have grabbed them as a second thought, walked out and put it somewhere and never seen it again. But I want this to be intentional. As we go back into worship, if you, if you would say, God, I want to engage the mission you've given me. God, I want to start with the world you placed me in. I want to be somebody that, that embraces the message and walks in the mission. And, and I simply want to start with prayer and see where you take me from there. If that's you and you would say, maybe I haven't been or I want to or I want to continue in it, then just grab one of these. We'll be in worship. Take it back to your seat and just start praying. I believe there's six, seven lines on here. You can pray, God, who would you have me pray for? Who are these people you put in my life that you want to reach through me? We've all got an opportunity. Again, we don't get another opportunity in 167, 76 years from now. So let's engage the mission, embrace the mission. This is just a simple, small, tangible thing. But I'd encourage you, take one of these, pray over it as we worship. And let's engage the mission God's given us. Let's worship.